Daniel 9 and the rapture. Last night, we, I think we covered Daniel 9 fairly exhaustively. We talked about this whole 70-week prophecy and how uh, God gave Daniel a special message, a message of importance, um, a message that would, that would help um, identify the Messiah when he came and help his people to be able to accept him, we've seen that they weren't really ready. And part of the reason was because they weren't accepting the prophecies or understanding the prophecies as they should have. And uh, one of the things that we learned last night was that the 70 weeks were cut off of the 2300-day prophecy. Remember that? That kathak, that word that the, the, the Hebrew uses to describe how 70 weeks are set aside or cut off of the longer time period. We, we linked together Daniel chapter 8 and Daniel chapter 9, the 2300 days. Now, this is the problem. Because if, in fact, this is true, which I don't see any way around it when we look at the context. If we just took Daniel 9, we wouldn't have to worry about all this. Or I shouldn't say we wouldn't have to worry. We wouldn't have the advantage of knowing this. Um, um, but, but if we take Daniel 8 and 9 as they seem to be so inextricably linked together by all the reasons that we talked about last night, then it makes no sense, does it? And there's certainly nothing in the text that would indicate it. It makes no sense to say that one of those 70 weeks should then be removed from this chronological progression and removed and placed even far beyond the end. I'm getting all tangled up here even far beyond the end of the 2300 days. Does that make sense? If 70 weeks have been cut off of a longer time period, it doesn't, it doesn't follow that, it could, that it could, one of those weeks can be placed far beyond. The first 70 weeks of the 2300 days were fulfilled exactly, and we saw how that 70th week has been fulfilled. The problem with that word, the, the people of the prince that will come will destroy the city and cause sacrifice and oblation, that's not very difficult when we see how Jesus explained it himself in the New Testament. We looked at Matthew chapter 21 and chapter 20, 22, right? And his parables that he gave where he used the same language and he talked about the king's son who was killed and the king would send his armies and destroy that city, right? This is, this is all language that's very easily understood. So the question then becomes, what does that mean about the rapture? How does, the, how does that affect the popular teaching of the rapture today? Well, let's just take a look at three popular views of the rapture. We're going to compare the three Christian tribulation views. Um, there are those who believe that the rapture of the church takes place before the tribulation. That's the first view you see right here at the top. I know that's going to be small print for some of you in the back, but that's sort of I, I sh maybe I should have blown it up, but that's as best I can do right now. So here we have the first view is that there's a rapture at the beginning of the tribulation. Um, depending on who you talk to, most of the time that's going to be, um, uh, it's going to be either the beginning of that 70th week or the middle of the week, um, three and a half years, it, it, it depends. Um, but here you have the rapture at the beginning of the church. Here's the, this red arrow represents the second coming and um, then the millennium afterwards. Um, of course, these are all premillennial views. There are also postmillennial views, which we're not going to get into tonight, but um, this is assuming a premillennial um, idea of, of, uh, of, of, of prophecy. The second view is a mid-tribulation, and that's a rapture in the beginning, as I mentioned, uh, in the middle of the uh, seven and a half years. And then there's the uh, rapture of the church, which is at the same time as the second coming. Now, when we talk about this tonight, I'm going to try to simplify things, okay? Because there are so many different views out there and so many different ideas that I'm just going to speak of 
one view um, versus the view that we're looking at from the Bible. And um, so um, the two views that we're going to be talking about primarily are the rapture that is coincidental with the, uh, rap- with the second coming of Jesus, as well as the pre-tribulation rapture. And most of the time, this rapture is viewed as a secret rapture, right? In other words, people don't really know what happened. It's just all of a sudden people disappear. And you've probably seen some of the movies or films. Um, it's been popularized. And so people understand it or they expect it to be that way. You know, planes are flying off without their pilots. And, and there's a pile of clothes where the people were. And, and you've seen those films. So that's a secret rapture idea, you understand. Um, and it's also a pre-tribulation rapture idea, okay? And so um, th- there are many, many... Um, expositors, many, many uh, Bible students who do believe this, and, um, and I have respect for them. I personally believe that the Bible teaches a post-tribulation rapture that is not a secret rapture, and uh, that means that the view that I'm going to try to show you from God's Word, I hope that it's very clear tonight, is a view that expresses the rapture of the church taking place at the same time when Jesus comes, the second time, power and glory, and it's not a secret. In other words, no one no one's going to miss that event when it comes. Now, I want to share with you four reasons tonight why I believe in a, I don't believe in a secret pre-tribulation rapture, why I believe in a rapture that will take place at the second coming. And I'm going to share with you these four reasons. We're going to go back over each one of them. So if you're taking notes, you don't have to write all four of them down. Just focus on the first one, okay? Um, the, first, the first one says the... Um, The secret pre-tribulation rapture teaching is based on the principles of futurism. Now, we've talked about futurism. We talked about it the last couple nights. Um, That's not the strongest reason, but I wanted to get it out of the way, okay? It's not the most important reason. Um, We're going to go through some of the history of the pre-tribulation secret rapture teaching. And it's one of the reasons, though, that I don't personally believe that is what the Bible is teaching. The second reason is that the Bible's teaching on the second coming is clear. So we're going to look. We don't have time to look at all of the verses that talk about the second coming. Did you realize that the second coming is the most prevalent theme of all of the Bible writers in the New Testament? Um, It is estimated one out of 25 verses in the New Testament refer to or speak about the second coming. It's called the blessed hope. Paul calls it repeatedly. And we'll look at some of those verses. We're not going to have time to look at all of them, but we'll look at a a couple of them that are very clear, very um, crystal clear passages that give clarity to that idea. Number three, the verses commonly used to demonstrate a secret rapture are taken out of context. Now, I want to be honest with you, okay? So, please, this is not something I'm offended if you say I disagree with you on that. Um, I just want to know what the Bible says, okay? So if you can help me understand verses that would, that would teach a secret pre-tribulation rapture, I want to know. Don't you want to know what the Bible says? I do. I really want to. And the problem, friends, is, and it happens sometimes when I'm sharing the Bible, people don't realize how thin the evidence is in the Bible for what, they're, what they've been taught. They just never thought about it. They never looked at it. They never looked at the context. And so tonight we want to honestly look at the context. And um, if you feel like I'm not being honest, please share that with me. We can, we can, um, you can write a question, leave it at the, quest- at the registration desk, give it to me, um, come and stop me afterwards and tell me I'm wrong. Listen, I want to know, okay? I want to know what the Bible says. And I don't believe that my mind is any better or any more likely to be led by the Holy Spirit than your mind. Is that fair? 
And so we want to learn together. So that's, that's simply what we're going to do tonight. We're going to look at those verses that are commonly used to teach the pre-tribulation rapture. Obviously, we've already looked at the 70 weeks, but we're going to look at other verses. Number four, the Bible never promises freedom from tribulation, but strength to be faithful in it. I've, I've read the whole Bible, and honestly, I don't find anywhere where God promises us we won't have trouble, we won't have trials. In fact, Jesus said the servant is not greater than his master, his Lord, right? And Jesus went through trials and tribulations. And, um, and so we're going to be talking about that this evening from God's Word. Is that fair? Do you want to, do you want, do you want to proceed as, as I've outlined here? Look at these four points. So let's start with the first one. The secret pre-tribulation rapture teaching is based on the principles of futurism. Now we've looked last night at three main schools of thought, historicism, futurism, and preterism. Tonight, we're going to just look over some of the history of the rapture, the pre-tribulation secret rapture teaching. It was first proposed by the author of futurism, um, Francisco Ribera, in 1590. He uh, taught that um, the rapture would happen 45 days before the end of a three and a half year tribulation. You probably haven't heard that, um, but that's the original secret rapture teaching was 45 days before the end of the three and a half year tribulation. So it really wasn't quite pre-tribulation. It was like uh, almost post-tribulation, wasn't it? That was the original teaching, but it was, it was a secret rapture. The concept of the rapture in, in connection with uh, premillennialism was, was uh, expressed also by the 17th century American Puritans um, by the name of Increase and Cotton Mather. Um, they held to the idea that believers would be caught up in the air, followed by judgments on earth, and then the millennium. Um, the term rapture was used by uh, Philip Doddridge and John Gill in their New Testament commentaries with the ideas that the believers would be caught up before the judgments of God landed upon this earth. Now, um, Emmanuel Lacunza, a Jesuit priest, wrote The Coming of the Messiah in Glory and Majesty, which was published after his death in 1812. Now, this was not published in English until 1827, as I mentioned here, Edward Irving. Edward Irving um, had picked up some of these things that had been written by uh, Francisco Ribera, as well as by the uh, Mather brothers, and um, he had been teaching this idea of a pre-tribulation uh, secret rapture in the early 1800s, beginning about 1806 or 1809, something like that. Um, Edward Irving then translated this book um, by Lacunza into uh, English. So this is the first real uh, significant work that is in English, and that was in 1827. You'll have a hard time finding any significant studies that teach the uh, pre-tribulation secret rapture before 1827. Edward Irving and his work influenced John Nelson Darby, who beginning in 1827 began popularizing the doctrine through the Plymouth Brethren and the Bible Conferences. And now this is a whole era of church history, very fascinating era. And by the way, they did a lot of good in those Bible Conferences. Both sides of the Atlantic, they were alternating and they were gathering together. It was somewhat, um, somewhat um, pietist, in their, in, their, uh, in their influence from the Moravians and others, they'd been influenced, and they were, they were really wanting a close connection with God, all very good things, and some very fine Christian believers were part of those Bible conferences. And so I, I want you, I say that because as a historian, as a church historian particularly, I don't want to cast 
I don't want to cast a shadow upon, if you've never heard of the Bible conferences or the Plymouth Brethren, I don't want you to feel like they were all bad. Um, we have to just objectively look at the different things they taught. Don't you believe that God has been leading his church to a greater understanding of truth as we go through history? I believe that. I believe if we see, we see that in the Reformation very, very clearly. They didn't all in one generation discover all of the new light or new understandings that, that, um, they had, been, that had been forgotten during the, the, the Middle Ages. So um, Don, uh, Darby um, influenced the Plymouth, Plymouth Brethren and the Bible Conferences. And um, this has been this this influence from Irving has been traced very clearly in the in the middle or the late 1900s. Um, a book was written that traced Darby's um, uh, thinking back to Edward Irving. Irving, and um, this uh, this continued to work its way into a number of books. Um, an, an increasing number of uh, Presbyterians, Baptists, and congregational members began to accept the pre-tribulation uh, uh, secret rapture idea. William Eugene Blackstone wrote a book called Jesus is Coming, published in 1878, um, which sold more than 1.3 million copies, um, and uh, then probably the greatest impact that gave the pre-tribulation rapture a widespread audience in America particularly was the Schofield Reference Bible. Because when Schofield um, wrote his reference Bible, um, he included his views on a pre-tribulation rapture. Now, I, I've traced this history, and the Plymouth Brethren, the Bible conferences, those weren't denominational. Those were sort of like non-denominational movements. Um, most of our denominations still, the Protestant denominations, had not officially accepted or were not teaching um, a pre-tribulation scripture, uh, a secret rapture. But their members were increasingly reading these books and being influenced by their views. And the Schofield Bible, first published in 1909, revised in, uh, again in 1919 and 1967, had a huge influence because call porters went all over the United States selling the Schofield's Reference Bible. And I've studied with many people in their homes or in my home and churches, different places, and we're going through a Bible study on prophecy, and they've got a Schofield Reference Bible, and they're reading his notes while we're talking about it. It's really confusing because he's, he's a pure futurist. He's just, he's just writing, I mean, he's just expounding on Francisco Rivera's theory from the 1590s. Um, and I'm a historicist, so our lens that we're looking at the prophecies are very different, you understand. And so I'm like, well, what does he say about that? And, and it's, it, it can be rather confusing. People tend to trust the Schofield Bible, I think, partly because it's written in the Bible. You know what I mean? It's sort of like they've grown up with this Bible, they've, they've, they've known this Bible, and, and it's there in the Bible. Well, it's Schofield's ideas that are in the Bible, but nonetheless, this is, this is the history, and I'm trying to be as fair and um, even-handed as, as I can be. Um, 1957, uh, John Wolverd's rapture question introduced the secret rapture officially in Baptist theological circles. Now, this is fairly late, wouldn't you agree? I mean, this is a, this is a theologian from the Dallas Theological Seminary who is now saying there's a biblical argument for the rapture. This is one of the earliest in, in, that, uh, in that community of faith. Now, you can see how quickly, with the foundation of many people already sort of reading and being aware of it, how quickly 
it became accepted. And today you find that many people and many denominations actually have accepted it. How did it happen so fast? Well, one of the ways is during the 1970s, Hal Lindsey's books and movies were widely consumed. And you know the late great planet Earth sold between 15 million and 35 million copies. And uh, the movie A Thief in the Night... Um, which based its title on the scriptural reference of 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 2. We're going to look at that tonight because it's a very, very important text. Lindsay proclaimed the rapture was imminent um, based on world conditions at the time. The Cold War, of course, figured prominently into his predictions of impending Armageddon. Um, Other aspects of the 1970s global politics were seen as being predicted by the Bible in how Lindsay's expositions. Lindsay suggested, for example, that the seven-headed beast of uh, Revelation with ten horns was the European economic community, a forebear of the European Union, which between 1981 and 1986 conveniently had ten member states. Unfortunately for how Lindsay's predictions, it now has 27. So it's not, it was simply not, we see today, right, that it doesn't fit the beast. And in fact, we're going to be looking in great detail in our next weekend together at the Beast of Revelation 13 and seeing how historicists view that. Um, In 1995, the doctrine of the pre-tribulation rapture was further popularized by Tim LaHaye's Left Behind series, which sold tens of millions of copies and were made into several movies. In fact, just recently there have been more um, movies that have been released about this. So you can see, I think you can see, that the pre-tribulation secret rapture has had wide exposure in the Christian world. Is that fair to say? And it's been fairly recent. Um, you can look up, you can Google it, you can find, um, you can find as much information on it as you want. There's, I, I think I've fairly evenly hit the high points of the history of the pre-tribulation uh, secret rapture. Um, now, this does not make it wrong just because it came from futurism, just because Francisco Ribera or, or Lacunza or, or, or the futurist invented it, I don't suppose. But it's one of the reasons why I have a hard time accepting it. It doesn't fit with a historicist model of Bible prophecy. And um, we're going to move on to the second point tonight. The Bible's teaching on the second coming is clear. Let's just look at a few verses on this topic, and I want us to look at them together because this is, I believe, just a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful topic. I get excited when I think about it. Um, Paul called it the blessed hope, and I think it's something to look forward to, amen? Um, Jesus is coming again, and um, whatever we disagree on about a rapture, I think all of us can agree that Jesus is coming again, and our goal is to see him face to face, amen? We want to see our Savior. And so let's see what the Bible says about the second coming of Jesus. I want to look at a couple of passages, only two or three, that we will will see what they teach about the second coming. Now remember, when when we're looking at Bible passages that talk about or that seem to teach one thing and maybe another Bible passage seems to teach another thing, how do we understand, how do we reconcile them? Well, one of the ways that we reconcile them is we say, okay, which of these passages is more clear? Okay, I'm not trying to say that any of the the Bible is not clear, not important. What I'm saying is some passages could be understood more than one way, right? It could mean this or it could mean that. How do we know? 
Well, we look at everything the Bible says on the subject, right? And we look at especially the very clear ones, the ones that can't be interpreted more than one way. And we interpret the ones that are less clear in the light shining from the ones that are more clear. Does that make sense? And so the most clear uh, passages on a topic are when the Bible or Jesus or the prophet is actually speaking on that topic. Does that make sense? I mean, sometimes he says something in passing that refers to the topic, but it's not, he's not trying to address the topic. Um, and we could, we'll look at some examples, um, perhaps. But let's look at this passage from 1 Thessalonians 4.13. Let's ask ourselves the question, is Paul trying to talk about what's going to happen at the second coming? Is that his topic? And is he clear? So let's look at it. First uh, Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. So first of all, he's, he begins by talking about what happens at death, right? Those who have fallen asleep. And he goes on and he says this, For the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a what? With a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Now, um, if, if, you, if, you, if you can go back to our prophecy series we did last fall, you remember when we talked about death and the resurrection, we actually studied how the Bible teaches there are two resurrections, right? The millennium divides them, the direction of resurrection of the righteous. Jesus talked about it too in, Matthew chapter, in John chapter 5. Um, and the resurrection of the wicked after the millennium. So the dead in Christ rise first, Paul says here. And then notice what it says happens. Um, then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will always be with the Lord. Is that good news? Yeah. Notice what Paul says happens. The dead in Christ are awakened by this trumpet call. This, this trumpet call, when Jesus comes, he says he comes with the, with, with the, with the uh, voice of the archangel and with the trump of God, and it's it's impressive enough that it wakens the dead, right? The dead hear it. Um, in fact, uh, G- Jesus says in, um, in, in Revelation, the first chapter, he says, every eye will see him, right? He comes with the clouds and every eye will see him. Revelation chapter one, verse seven. So the, 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 the dead hear, everyone sees. And notice it says, then we who are alive, how does it say here? Let me back up a little bit. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up, what does it say? Together with them in the cloud. So to me, this is a very clear passage. It's talking about what happens at the second coming. Jesus comes in the clouds. There's a resurrection, the voice of the archangel, the trump of God, the dead rise first. They are caught up to, to, to meet the Lord. Then we who are alive and remain, that means we didn't die, right? Is that what it says? I'm not just imagining this, am I? It says we who are alive and remain are caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we will ever be with the Lord. That's the uh, rapture that I believe in. I believe that Jesus Christ is going to come. The dead are going to be raised. They're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air, and we're going to follow them, and we will ever then be with the Lord. Now, let's look at what Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 24. For as the lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, have you ever seen that sheet lightning? It just sort of covers the whole sky. So also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, that's a pretty impressive picture, right? 
It's going to be something that gets our attention. It's going to be something that's impossible for us to miss. That's why Jesus said that every eye will see him. The next verse says this. I want you to notice this. For wherever the carcass is, there the eagles will be gathered together. Just put that away. File that away in your mind. Jesus says, as the lightning shines from the east all the way to the west, that's what the second coming is going to be like. And then he inserts this seemingly nonsensical, meaningless phrase or, or statement. For wherever the eagles are, that's where the carcasses are going to be gathered together. Uh, carcasses are. That's where the eagles will be gathered together. That's right. And, um, and that is something that we're going to see coming back even in his own words a little later. Um, we continue in Matthew chapter 24, and he says, But as the days of Noah were, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and did not know until the flood came and took them all away, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, let me just ask you some questions. Did Jesus say it's going to be like the days of Noah when, before he comes? Yeah, there's going to be a mindlessness about spiritual things. There's going to be a, a rejection of, of truth and ideas of truth. There's going to be a, a difficulty for um, spiritual truths to be understood because people are so interested in the, 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 the things of this world. And he says, just like that there's also going to be a parallel for when he comes they're not expecting it and then the flood comes came and took them all away do you think they knew when it took them all away though okay they weren't expecting it they weren't prepared for it but when it came they knew it right and i suspect that jesus is saying it's going to be like that also at the second coming the coming of the son of man will um, be like it was in the days of Noah. Now, if we continue on, we see how the verses commonly used to demonstrate a secret rapture are often taken out of context. Let's just look at them. Continue on here in Matthew chapter 24, first of all. Then two men will be in the field, one will be taken and the other left. Have you heard that verse? Is that used in conjunction with the secret rapture? Okay, now what it does say, I think it says, I think you'll agree with me, what it does say is that when Jesus comes again, not everyone's going to be saved. Would you agree with that? Um, some people are going to be lost. They're not going to be ready. And of course, that's what he's just said, like in the days of Noah. But we can also see that what it doesn't say, it doesn't say that one is taken secretly, does it? Now, we could, we could read that in there, but it doesn't say that. It doesn't say that it's taken secretly. If we continue on, the next verse says, Then two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and the other left. Right? Um, what is he trying to say here? Um, if we continue on, I want you to turn your Bibles here to Matthew 24, because we need to see this for yourself. You need to understand what the Bible is trying to teach and what it is saying here. And I want you to make sure and, and see it for yourself tonight. Matthew chapter 24, and we're going to read, and this is verse 40 and 41 we just read. And this is what it says, verse 42. Watch therefore, for you do not know what hour your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known what hour the thief would come, he would have watched and not allowed his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. 
So what Jesus is, is clearly trying to say here is that at the second coming, some people will be surprised because they didn't expect it. Is that, is that clear? Some people will be surprised because they didn't expect it. Is it saying that some people will not know that he came? No. Now, no one is a, a, a very professional or, or accomplished or successful thief for very long who goes through the phone book and says, you know, I'm going to, oh, let me just give them a courtesy call, you know. Um, uh, 1.30 a.m. on January 29, I'm going to be coming by to take your TV, just to give you a heads up. Does that, is that how it works? No. Thieves don't do that. But once they've come, you know it, right? Once they've broken in, um, you know it. So these, this context here of these two men, two women, one taken, the other left, the context is very clearly that Jesus, is going, Jesus coming will be a surprise and some people will not be ready. Not everyone will be saved. Now, it doesn't say it's not secret. It doesn't say it is secret, right? Would you agree with me? It doesn't say it's going to be uh, um, nobody knows when it happens, or it, it just doesn't say that. It just says one's going to be taken, the other left. Now, let's look at the parallel passage. Isn't it always a good idea to see everything the Bible says on a topic? There's a parallel passage in Luke chapter 17. So we look over to Luke chapter 17, and we see how Jesus describes it here. Now, sometimes the best way to understand the Bible is to just see how the different apostles or the different prophets, the different disciples, commentators, gospel writers, how they wrote it. The same passage, the same teaching of Jesus. It's sort of like with the book of Revelation. Remember we, we saw in our series, we've seen in our series, how it's better to understand the story from Daniel. And then when we get to Revelation and, and, and John the Revelator borrows that story from Daniel, now we see what it really means and how it's going to be fulfilled in the last days. Luke chapter 17 and we're going to begin with verse 22. Luke chapter 17 and verse 22. And um, this is, again, the coming of, the, um, of, of Jesus. Then he said to the disciples, The days will come when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, Look here or look there. Do not go after them or follow them. For, he, remember this is a familiar passage from Matthew 24, For as the lightning that flashes out of one part of the heaven shines to the other part under heaven, so also the Son of Man will be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. And as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They ate, they drank, they married wives, they were given in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Likewise, it was also in the days of Lot. They ate and drank, they, they bought and sold, they planted, they built. But on the day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven and destroyed them all. Even so it will be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. Now, do you see what the context is here? Jesus is, is setting it up, right? Lightning from the east to the west. Well, he doesn't say that here. One part of heaven to the other part of heaven, right? Lightning. Um, uh, uh, the, the flood came, uh, the fire and brimstone came. It's going to be a similar situation. In that day, it says, he who is on the housetop and his goods are in the house, let him not come down to take them away. Likewise, he who is in the field, let him not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to save his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life will preserve it. And then he uses that same passage. Now, it's in the context of what? The second coming, Right? A very visible second coming. He's compared it to when the flood came. Do you think they knew when the flood came? 
Do you think they knew when fire and brimstone came down? I mean, they didn't know it for long, I suppose. But the, yeah, this was, not, this was nothing secret about it. And this is the context, friends, of this teaching of Jesus. Does that make sense? We've got to look at it in context. And this is why when I say my point number three, many of the verses are taken out of context. We simply, if we took just these verses and there's nothing else in context and nothing else that the Bible teaches about it, I can understand how we would see a secret rapture. I can understand that. But in context, I can't. I can't be honest with this text because Jesus just explained how it's going to be clearly a visible, climactic, you can't miss it event. Um, And he compares it then to the destruction of the earth by water and the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah by fire. And he says, uh, then two men will be in one bed, one will be taken, the other left. Two women will be grinding together, the one will be taken, the other left. Two men will be taken in a field, the one uh, will be in a field, the one will be taken, the other left. Now then they ask him this nonsensical question. Where, Lord? Where what? Two men were in a bed. That's where. Two women were at a mill. That's where. Right? Two men were in a field. That's where. What are they asking when they say where? Where are they taken? Right? That's the only national... I mean, isn't that right? I can think of no other rational reason why these guys say where. What? Where are they taken? And what does Jesus say? Remember the same thing he talked about in context with the second coming in Matthew 24. The exact same phrase. He says, wherever the body is, there the eagles will be gathered together. You see, there's no promise, friends, that when Jesus comes the second time, anyone's going to be left alive. In fact, the Bible's pretty clear. We're going to look at some of these verses. Uh, when when the, the righteous are raptured from the earth, the wicked, it says in Revelation chapter 6, they, said, Fall, they say to the rocks and the mountains, fall on us and hide us from the face of him that sits on the throne. We looked in our study at Revelation chapter 19, Jesus coming on a white horse, his sword that comes out of his mouth, it slays the nations. The wicked are destroyed by the brightness of Jesus coming. We'll look in 2 Peter, what he says happens. What I'm trying to say, friends, is, and Jesus is saying it here, when, wherever the body is, there the carcasses are gathered together. What Jesus is saying is, you want to be among those saved when he comes again. Because it doesn't turn out very well for those who are left. It doesn't turn out very well. Wherever the bodies are, the carcasses are, he says in Matthew 24, there the eagles are gathered together. So the context and the parallel passages show us that even though if these two or three verses of, you know, two women and two men, one taken, the other left, if those were the only verses on the topic, then we could see, well, maybe we could understand that to be a secret rapture. But looking at the context, it's clearly in teaching, Jesus clearly teaching about his second coming, which is not secret. And it doesn't leave people alive to have a second chance on salvation, a second chance to get their act together. I think this is one of the devil's cleverest deceptions. Because there's a lot of people, I think, in this world that figure, I can wait to get my life right with God, 
even if I have to go through some trouble for it, I'll have a second chance and I'll know when it comes. We'll know when the rapture comes. And I think a lot of people are waiting who need to right now be getting on their knees and asking God to give them a relationship with Him and, and save them by His grace through His blood. Um, we, there's no, there's, I don't find it in the Bible. Let's look at some other verses. These, we're looking at the commonly used verses and we're looking at the context. Here's a great one. This is one that, again, if, um, if this was the only thing that said, I might be able to see that this was um, talking about um, a secret rapture. 2 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. And I say 2 Thessalonians. I'm almost sure that I meant 1 Thessalonians. Um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. Sometimes my twiddly fingers get ahead of me. Um, Second Thessalon- I'm 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2. Let's read it, okay? Turn with me in your Bibles there. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. That what it says, what it says on the screen is, for yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. Have you heard that phrase before? Thief in the night? Yes, very popular phrase. But where does it come from? What's the context? Isn't this important? Shouldn't we be asking these questions? But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I write to you, for you yourself know perfectly that the day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night. There it is. Now, first, we should probably back up a little bit further. We already read what the previous chapter ended with, right? I want you to know what's going to happen to those who have died. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a what? Shout with the voice of the archangel, with the trump of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. That's the resurrection, right? Okay. And then it says that, that it will be caught, the, those who have been resurrected will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. We're going to, who are alive and remain, will be caught up with them. And so we shall ever be with the Lord, right? That's what he's just talked about. So when he says here in, in a few verses later, remember, chapter divisions are artificial. They weren't in Paul's letters. How many of you write letters and say, chapter 2, verse 1. That's not the way Paul wrote letters. Um, the verses and chapters were added later by scholars, hundreds of years later, to help us be able to understand and talk about the Bible. And it's helpful, isn't it? I'm so glad they did that, because I would have a hard time telling you where to go in the Bible if they didn't do that. Um, But in in Paul's letter, this is a continuous thread of writing. He's just described the second coming, the resurrection, the voice of the ark, the trump of God. uh, uh, It's pretty clear, a shout about the second coming. And then he says... For you yourselves know perfectly that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. Now, the first, the preceding context, it teaches us that this isn't something secret, doesn't it? It's a thief in the night, but it's not secret. What does it mean? It simply means it wasn't expected. There wasn't a schedule that said, we know it's going to come at a certain time. Notice with me what he goes on. Um, For when they say, verse 3, we're going to look at the context that follows now. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them. That means when it least expected, right? The world is going to be saying, we have no reason to believe Jesus is coming again. And by the way, much of the world is going to be saying and already is saying, Jesus doesn't exist anyway, right? We are a process of natural development, of evolution, and all of these other things. And so we have no reason to believe that God exists. 
peace and safety, then it says sudden destruction. So the thief in the night idea is connected with unexpected um, surprise, right? And then he gives an illustration. Oh man, I love this. Listen, friends, the word of God is so clear. It really is. He says, then sudden destruction comes upon them as labor pains upon a pregnant woman and they shall not escape. Now, let me ask you this. I've never been pregnant. In fact, I've never been a woman. Um, and um, so I don't know. I don't know what it's like to have labor pains. My guess is that when you're a pregnant woman, you don't know when those are going to come. Is that right? Ladies that have been there and done that. Okay. You don't know when they're going to come. I have a second guess. When they do come, you know they're there. <laughs> now, now, let, friends, I don't, mean to be, I don't mean to be silly about God's word. It's a serious thing we're talking about here, right? But let's be honest. Isn't this verse used often, just referred to as proving the secret rapture? The Lord, day of the Lord comes as a thief in the night, right? Yeah. Am I being honest? Is this true? Yeah. I think it is. I mean, that's the way I've heard it. There's nothing secret about it. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, Oh, I had a baby last night. Look what happened. No. From what I hear, labor pains, you don't know when they're going to happen, but when they do happen, you know they're there. And that's the way the day of the Lord will be. Isn't it pretty clear? I mean, Paul's using illustrations we can wrap our minds around and understand. The day of the Lord comes as a thief because we don't know when it's going to be there. But notice, I, I love it because Paul even gets a little bit more excited. <laughs> you know, remember he talked, he talked probably the most profusely about the second coming of any of the New Testament writers. And notice what he goes on. He says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness so that day should overtake you as a what? As a thief. So even... If we understand that the meaning of the thief in the night, the day of the Lord doesn't have to be a thief in the night for those who are waiting for it. Because we, friends, are supposed to be studying our Bible so we know when it's about to happen. Not at the day or the hour, but when we know that Jesus is coming is soon. That's what we've been studying about. These prophecies help us understand that Jesus' coming is, is soon. It is, it is imminent. I hope it's soon. I really do. I want to pray like John the Revelator, even so, Lord Jesus, quickly come. Because we've got enough trouble. And um, this world is not worth living in. This world is not our home. So the context, would you agree with me? The context of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 2 clearly shows us that it's talking about a very visible climactic second coming when the resurrection takes place, when it's going to be something we cannot miss. Does that make sense? And that's the context of this passage. Well, let's look at another one. Let's look at another one. Second Peter chapter three and verse 10. Notice it says, but the day of the Lord will come as a, what does it say? Thief in the night. There it is. Maybe this one makes the rapture, the secret rapture very clear. So let's look there. Second Peter chapter three and verse 10. And, um, oh, my context is so important when we study God's word. Um, remember a text taken out of context is a pretext. And so we see here in 2 Peter chapter 3 and uh, verse 9, we'll start. Um, I love it because it's a promise. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, but as some count slackness, as some count slackness, but is long suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, 
but that all should come to repentance. So let me just say this first of all, friends. I do believe that God wants as many people to be saved as possible. But I do believe the Bible teaches that He will do that before the second coming, not after a secret rapture. Does that make sense? In other words, we have the Bible's testimony that today is the day of salvation. We ought to hear His voice. And um, he, He's going to delay His second coming as long as He possibly can so as many people can be saved as possible. But this idea that He has to have a second chance after a rapture, it's simply not found in the Bible. So here's this delaying, long-suffering, waiting so as many people can be saved as possible. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Oh boy, the rest of it doesn't help. In which the heavens will pass away with, what does it say, friends? A great noise, and the elements will melt with what? Fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be what? Burned up. Therefore, seeing all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you ought to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Would you agree with me, friends, that 2 Peter chapter 3 and verse 10, in context, does not teach a secret's coming or a secret rapture? It's a very climactic event. The second Peter chapter 3 and verse 10 teaches us. Now, these friends are the verses that are most commonly used. And so if I'm honest with as best as I understand it, I have to say that taken in context, they do not clearly teach a secret pre-tribulation rapture. The last reason we're going to look at here this evening is that the Bible never promises freedom from tribulation, but strength to be faithful in it. The Bible never promises freedom from tribulation, but strength to be faithful in it. Um, and the, um, the, if we move to um, our Bibles again, first, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 12 tells us, Yea, uh, yes, and all that live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will suffer persecution. What is it about the last day church that should be exempt from that? Is there a reason particularly? I don't understand, I don't find it in the Word of God. Why would the last day church be less fit for following in their master's footsteps than the generations that went before? Why should they be exempted from it? I don't believe that they will be. James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4 says, My brethren, count it all what? Joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect worth, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. I believe, friends, that tribulation, though God suffers through it with us, I believe that tribulation has a role to play in refining our characters, in helping us to be ready for God's kingdom. And from the Bible, the Bible from the beginning to the end, I find no promise that God's people will not have troubles, no trials, not even for the last day people. I don't find it. What I do find is God promises to always be with us in those troubles. What I do find is that God promises to sustain us and to give us strength. I believe that this can be seen clearly in the Word of God. Job, who had gone through more tribulation than probably most people will, even in the last days, he says, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, the King James says, when he has tried me, I will come forth, I shall come forth as gold. 
like gold from a refiner's fire. How is a diamond formed? It's under extreme pressure, isn't it, in the heart of the earth? How is a, how is a uh, pearl formed? It's through irritation there in, the, in that uh, crustacean, right, or in that shell. Um, how is gold purified? It's through the refiner's fire. And friends, the Bible teaches that God is faithful to be with us through the refining fire. Remember when he studied Daniel chapter 3, we remember Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were faced with a decision whether they would obey God and die in a fiery furnace or whether they would obey man and live. And we saw that that is the question that recurs over and over and over in, in Bible prophecy, doesn't it? Who are you going to obey? Are you going to obey God and die or are you going to obey man and live? At least apparently. Apparently that's the question that they faced. And Shadrach... Uh, Meshach and Abednego were standing there right there where they could smell the smoke and see the flame of the fire. They knew that they could not survive that fire unless there was a divine miracle. And this is what they said, Daniel chapter 3, verses 16 through 18. O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. We don't need to think about this. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace. Could God keep us out of tribulation? Yes, he can. I believe that. And I believe he will for some people. I don't believe everyone will go through all the same trials or tribulations. I do believe all will, that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. But, he says, if not, if we're not delivered from that fiery furnace, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the image which you have set up. And at this point, Nebuchadnezzar became infuriated. He became so furious the Bible says his countenance, his very facial features change towards them. And he commanded they heat, they heat the furnace seven times hotter than it was usually heated. And he commanded his strongest men in his army to uh, cast these men into the fiery furnace. And these uh, men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down bound into the midst of the fiery furnace. And we could ask ourselves the question, why didn't God save them? Why didn't God answer their faith, honor their faith? Oh, but He did honor their faith, didn't He? He didn't prevent them from going to the furnace, but He protected them as they went through the furnace. Oh, it's an amazing story. Nebuchadnezzar was astonished and rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not throw three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king, look, he answered, I see four men loose. Four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they're not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God friend of mine, when we go through hard times, we have one promise. I will never leave you or forsake you, even to the end of the age. And I want to propose one additional thought here. I believe that the greatest way that the world can see the character of God through us is not when we are reflecting his character in good times, but when we are in the midst of the furnace. I believe 
that the greatest demonstration of the Son of Man, of Jesus Christ's character, of His love, of His grace, of His power, is yet to be seen in this world. And it's going to be seen in His people as they go with Him through the midst, even the midst of the fire. In the book of Revelation, we remember, we re, we're just reviewing now, the book of Revelation borrows this story, this very same story, the image of Babylon set up. Babylon again sets up an image in Revelation 13, commands the whole world to worship it. Listen, friends, it's borrowed language, obviously expects us to go back and study that story. And when we go back, we remember that this, this beast of Revelation, two beasts in Revelation 13, uh, we'll run through it real quickly, and, and I, this is just a little bit of a, a preview because in two weeks, beginning on not this Friday night, but the following Friday night, I believe it's February 6th, yep. we're going to begin a study three nights, Friday, Saturday night, and Sunday night, on the prophecies of Revelation 13, these very passages, the two beasts of Revelation 13, the mark of the beast, and 666, all in one chapter. And we're going to be trying to unpack it in those three evenings. Then I saw another beast coming up out of the earth. He had two horns like a lamb, and he spoke like a, what does it say? A dragon. He exercised all the authority of the first beast in his presence, and he causes the earth and those who dwell in it to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. He performs great signs so that he can make fire come down from heaven on earth in the sight of men. And uh, he deceives those who dwell on the earth by those signs which he was granted to do in the sight of the beast, telling, sorry, I'm running ahead of myself, aren't I? Telling those who dwell on the earth to make an image to the beast who was wounded by a sword and lived. Um, verse 15, he was granted to give power to, uh, he was granted power to give breath to the image of the beast, that the image of the beast should both speak and cause as many as would not worship the image of the beast to be killed. He causes all, both small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive a mark on their right hand or on their foreheads, and that no one may buy or sell except one who has the mark or the name of the beast or the number of his name. This, my friends, is a clear borrowing of the language of Daniel chapter 3 and saying there's something similar going to happen in the future. Babylon, this time spiritual Babylon, is going to create an image is to command the world to worship, and God's people are going to be faced with a test. Now, I believe, this is my personal conviction, that if we look at all the Bible says, never promising us no tribulation, if we look at the story that it borrows from, I believe God's people are going to be shining with the character of God, and people in this world are going to see the Son of Man through their lives, even as they go through this time of test and trial. And just like God preserved Daniel's three friends, he's going to preserve his people. He is going to be there with him. Babylon, past and future, subverts the worship of the world, uses signs and wonders to deceive, um, demands obedience on pain and uh, upon pain of death. Um, we still have to face the question that these three friends had to face. Who are we going to obey? Who are we going to follow? Are we going to stay with Jesus? God does not promise to keep us from fiery trials, friends, but He does promise that He will be with us through them. He promises that He will be right there in the midst of the fiery furnace. The only thing burned in the fire 
were the ropes that bound them. That's it. I believe that the only thing burned or destroyed or hurt or damaged in any tribulation God may take us through are going to be those ropes that bind us to this earth. And we're going to be all the more ready for heaven when Jesus comes again. My conviction, having studied these four points, my conviction is that there is a rapture, but it's not secret, it's not pre-tribulation. Jesus is coming again. He's coming again in power and glory. And there are going to be people who are alive waiting to see him. There's going to be some, one group of people who's looking for the rocks and the mountains to fall on them. They don't want, on them. They don't want to see the face of Jesus. There's going to be another group of people who, as it says in the words of Isaiah, are, are going to look up and say, Lo, this is our God. We have waited for him. He's going to save us. I want to be in that group of people. How about you? I want to be in that group of people that's ready for him when he comes. And I pray that you will be too. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Father God, we just thank you that your word reveals so much. We thank you that you have a plan for our future. We thank you you have promises for our future. Lord, tonight, I know uh, maybe there's some here, this is new, there's a lot to process. I know the rapture, at least in the communities I've lived in, a lot of my friends and even family, they, it's very well talked about, it's very common. And yet, Father, we want to be true to your word. We just want to follow the Bible. We don't want to be deceived by the ideas that have been popularized. And so I pray that for myself, and I pray for each person here, that we just might be committed that to the, to the law and to the testimony, we want to live by your word, by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Oh Lord, tonight I pray you bless us as we study, bless us as we continue to grow. Thank you for all those who have studied tonight. Bless their hearts, bless their homes. Thank you for those who helped to, to organize and to uh, set up these studies tonight. I just want to pray that you would bless each one here tonight and help us to be faithful to you so that when you come again, we will be in that group who look up and say, this is our God. We've waited for him and he's here to save us. What a day of rejoicing that will be. We thank you in his name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.